Shri Guru Vaishnava Guru Parampara ki jai. Krishna Janmashtami Motva ki jai. Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai. Gaur Premanandi. So, how's everyone doing this evening? Okay. And so, any questions tonight? Yes. I had a question uh, about the mind. You mentioned before about how it's kind of like being in a boxing ring <laughs> with the mind. And uh, I was wondering if you could give uh, a kind of detailed explanation as far as all the details, what it means to interact with the mind, what the mind is, and how to deal with it. And then also that stage that you were talking about, when we can finally beat the mind. How do we get to that stage? Hmm. Well, it's a big topic, um, but um, mind is, of course, a, an English word that, as we're talking about it, speaks about an aspect of what's in Sanskrit called antakarna, or the internal organ, or the subtle subtle body that so has different components, manas, citta, buddhi, and um, what is the other one? Manas, citta, buddhi, hankar, and hankar. Hmm? Um, and in a very uh, basic sense, the uh, yogic or spiritual uh, task at hand, well, the problem, I should say, is that from the inception of our material existence, which has no beginning, um, the the buddhi makes a determination. Buddhi means intelligence, so it's a faculty of discrimination. And so buddhi makes judgments. Hmm? value judgments, determinations. And so, kind of the, as the, as the, as the Mahavishnu dreams out or breathes out the world um, in one of its beginningless cycles, then um, the consciousness touches matter, which is in a state of equilibrium and activates it it's kind of like the Big Bang kind of idea. And and so then uh, this faculty of buddhi, which is material, hmm, uh, emerges and through ahankar or eye-making, it means eye-maker, we call it like the false ego, the metaphysical um, ego of bodily identif- and mental identification. An eye is formed, determination is made, an eye is formed based on the determinations and um, so on. The whole thing un- unfolds, if you will. And um, and there are uh, then uh, thoughts related to actions and so forth. And uh, the thoughts, uh, they... Um, um, Enter into the into the chitta, and they and then they inform in, in the chitta in a certain way or color it, hmm? and then and then we are kind of driven 
by the actions that are uh, kind of written on the citta, so to speak, and buddhi is kind of pushed aside. So the, the, the trick, in one sense, in, in spiritual life is, is to clean the, the citta. Hmm? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu referred to a ceto darpana marginum, cleansing the mirror of the mind. This citta is kind of like where our thoughts are reflected, thoughts in relation to the sense objects and the actions that we perform and so forth. Certain messages go into the citta, and and so it forms the habits and tendencies and and so forth. Hmm? And so the idea is to to cleanse that citta, ceto darpana. It's like a mirror. We, we've reflected on the world, and it's uh, an impression is coming back in the mind, in a picture of life, and so forth. And we're involved in it, <clears throat> and so. Um, the idea is, is is to cleanse the citta and to fortify the buddhi hmm? with good spiritual instruction, scriptural ad- advices, and so forth. It becomes the 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 informing, uh, determining uh, agent, so to speak, and the, and so that then then as the citta is cleansed. And the booty is fortified, then one engages in those things that are directed by the sacred texts and sadhus and exemplified by the sadhus and so forth and and um, and then one's no longer in this struggle with 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 the mind, so to speak, so there's a kind of a cleansing of the mind that's um, that's required um, that's the manas. So, and this uh, this mind um, and has the is kind of well we we refer to it as like the sixth sense or the eleventh sense if you have five senses for perceiving and five senses for acting like legs and arms are are active senses and hearing and seeing those are percept senses of perception so there's five of each and then the mind is the sixth or the eleventh, however you want to talk about it. And mind is, therefore, one of the senses, but it's different than all of the senses. And that the mind is more is, is subtle, and, um, and much more subtle, I should say, and, and it, it has the ability to take the shape of a thing hmm, that it's focused on. Hmm, um, and apprehend it... Hmm if you will, uh, more so than the sense can. That's why if the sense contacts a thing, but the mind is not connected with it, you don't, you don't perceive it. You might be looking at something, but if your mind is somewhere else, then you don't see it. So it has to be lined up. Um, so at any rate, um, this mind is then um, the medium through which the atma communicates with uh, the external World, it's subtle enough that it that it that it um, flexible enough, so to speak, that it becomes the, uh, the the interface. It's kind of the interface between the gross subtle uh, physical material world and the atma. The interface is this subtle stuff called called mind. That's its 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 role. In, in, the, in the mind, what happens is we get impressions 
um, in, in, in philosophy of mind, it would be called like qualia, hmm. like redness. You experienced red. And everybody experiences red maybe just a little bit differently. And, and um, all those subjective feelings, hmm? um, red, blue, happy, sad, um, these are ex- emotions, the idea in Vedanta is connected with, with the mind, and they're, they're kind of a semblance of an, an experience of what the physical world is like. It's, you never really, the Atman never really touches the physical world, hmm? but through the medium of uh, Ahankar and this ego and, and, and mind, there are some interface and impressions of what the world is like come. Hmm? And these are subjective feelings. These are very difficult for um, uh, naturalists, physicalists uh, to, um, to 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 figure out. There's a famous. Uh, there, they, we would not consider the subjective qualia experiences. We, we, we consider them to also be a subtle material, but, but they're so different um, that they don't, there's no place in the brain you know, that they can figure out that, that causes those. Hmm? Um, we go a step further to the, to the person, the entity that's having the experiences. Experiences are one thing if somebody has to have them. That's the I, the overriding I, the, the, the self, the Atma. Uh, but but the qualia itself is a problem for physicalists. There's a famous um, mind. Um, what would you call it? Mind thought experiment, something like that. Uh, that uh, it, called Mary's Room. You might have heard of it. This is, this is one of them. There's a number of them. Mary Mary was a lady who um, was colorblind. Uh, she had never had never had any direct experience of colors. And she lived in a, in, a, in, a, in a situation where she was not exposed to any colors directly, but she was fully informed about all the physical properties of colors. In other words, red has certain physical properties. It's this many photons and this much light and, 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 and so on and so forth that makes up red. So you could analyze all the physical components of red and know them completely, and she had understood them completely. She knew everything that there was to be known physically about red. Hmm? But she never had the quality, the quality of the experience of red, hmm? which knowing the physical properties in and of itself don't afford you. Hmm? And then the story is, in, 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 in the experiment, she goes outside of the room, and uh, and she and she has the experience of red. She sees a red rose, and then she has the ideas that she has knowledge now that she didn't have, despite having all the knowledge of the physical properties of red, the qualitative experience of red, which was registering in her mind. She didn't have. So the argument, as it was originally put forward, was. There's something beyond the physical, hmm? and it's this qualia, these experiences. Now we, we we consider these experiences to be subtle 
form of of physicalism, I guess, uh, mentalism. Uh, you know, in, in the mental mind being the interface, as I said. Beyond that, of course, is the fact that somebody's there's actually an entity, an I, hmm, who's experiencing. So even the qualia itself is a difficult problem for people in philosophy of mind or in neuroscience to figure out because they're looking in these schools of thought. Where's the switch? Where's the where where in the brain that you press that and that you get qualitative experiences? In other words, as I was saying earlier, if um, what what is it that collides in the brain that causes uh, experience? It's like the question of you know what would cause two billiard balls upon colliding to say ouch, which they don't. Hmm? But this ouch is going on in the brain, and the brain is physical, and the billiard balls are physical. There's no really difference; they're arranged differently. But it, it, but it, but but can you just arrange the physical properties? That means to say you could arrange the same components of a billiard ball differently in such a way that they would say ouch at some point. Hmm? That's what is being said by saying that ouch, if you will, or red, hmm, is really only a function of the brain. Hmm? And so... Then, then if, if it is only a function of the brain, there doesn't need to be anybody there. It's just something that happens. There's a uh, kind of, but there does kind of have to be somebody there. Anyway, so it's a problem. What to speak of the, the idea of the atma, a person. It's, this is a problem for people who are trying to look at the whole thing from an entirely physical, uh, natural world solution to everything. There's only physical. There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing outside of the physical world that has a causal influence on the world, like a god, or like an atma, soul, or will, free will, consciousness, that actually has causal and purposeful, meaningful role in the world. They don't think that, some people in the scientific community, the philosophical community, because they can't measure it. They can't find it. Of course, our philosophy is that it's, it's immeasurable, and, and there are ways, if you understood consciousness, that it can affect the world, the, the, the physical world, and still you can't uh, measure it with your your instruments. Hmm? And uh, but they want to measure it. But the, the whole idea is, what, you know, it's immeasurable. So you know, it's a, uh, now that's hard to demonstrate. But that's the theory, and that's where we we the the, the great divide, if you will. So this is uh, something about mind and how it works and what its role is and so forth. Now, in an overarching sense, you, you want to talk about it in terms of the day-to-day struggle that you have to control it and so forth. And I've touched on that in the beginning by saying the solution to that is you've got to fortify your buddhi. Hmm? And the way that we fortify the buddhi, what does Krishna say in the Gita about that? Hmm? He says that too, but what does he say about fortifying your buddhi? Hmm? That's buddhi, B-U-D-D-H-I. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Who knows? What does it say in the Gita about fortifying your intelligence? Hmm? He says, those who study this sacred conversation between Krishna and Arjuna, hmm? actually it says in the Gita, uh, this, this, the, uh, the speaker, uh, what is his name? Um, Shonaka. Shonaka? Or? Sanjay. 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 
is telling the story to Dhritarashtra, the blind king. He's experiencing the, the, the conversation between Krishna and Arjuna in meditation. And then he concludes, he says, anyone who, 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 who studies this, hmm, sacred conversation, and, and, from every, and the implication is from every angle, looking at every word, what is the implication, the possible meaning, and so on and so forth, studying the commentaries and, and this kind of thing, hmm, that person worships me by their intellect. Hmm? That intellect will be well fortified. That, that will make the shraddha, which is a heart affair, the faith, very, um, uh, I want to say, uh, uh, strong. It's like faith is kind of like, like if you take steel and you want to make it stronger, what do you do with it? Hmm? Heat it. Yeah, so you put it in the fire, and then just before it melts, you pull it out, and it becomes stronger. So we have some tender faith, hmm? for what we're involved in here. And we have all these books and so forth and these kind of discourses and whatnot. These, these books and discourses, they're all like a fire in a sense. We're supposed to enter into that and inform our buddhi as to the, the good reasoning as to our faith. And then... Um, and make it, it this way, it becomes... Stronger, so there's a there's a there's a point in which we have to harmonize our heart with our head, and that means that we have to look at the book and look at the world and and then make sense out of it and so forth and and um, and um, and and survive, so to speak, the heat of that and uh, and uh, so so in other words, you could have faith but not have a head, and a lot of people like to I believe in God and 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 and, and they say things and they have a sentiment and so forth, but it's not a very well-informed sentiment. Their faith is not in consort with... It, it lacks intellectual integrity. They have a belief, like, you know, I believe really, that, that, you know, the, the, you know, whatever, you know, that, uh, that in 2012, the whole world is going to, you know, evaporate because it says it's in the Mayan calendar. And, but wait a minute, you know, what does the Mayan calendar really say? And what does it really mean? Isn't that just a... Well, I don't care about that, you know. And, and of course, and then 2012 comes and passes, and nothing happens. And, and then they got some other thing that they latch on to, as, you know, and so forth. And it's not well, well reasoned, and so forth. Hmm? So those people tend to be dismissed by people who have intelligence as people who don't aren't very intelligent. They've got some sentiment, and then faith is thought to be just that: the absence of ability to to answer questions. You can't answer questions, or you, so you just have faith, and uh, you, you call it, it's a de- deviation from reason. Actually, faith is 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 uh, reason is really at its best when it becomes a a a a, a, a an aspect of faith. So that's what we're talking about: well-reasoned faith. We take our intellect and we use it in such a way as to to to. St- to strengthen our faith, and that's what the scriptural argument is for, properly understood. That's why we can't just just read the book. We need to hear it from people who can draw more from the book, from us and so forth, and apply it present time and circumstance and so forth. And then we start finding, hey, what I believe in makes sense. That's cool. I I always wanted it to. Uh, In other words, you hear some basic arguments. They make sense to you. You you join a, a, a lineage like this and so forth, and then... 
Other people say, why did he join that? And, and well, we believe this. And, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And you go, hmm, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that. Or, and so these books are help us, help us, and these discourses are able to say, well, it, it does make sense, and this is why, because what you're thinking doesn't make sense, and this is why, and, 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 and so forth. And so in time you find that your heart, faith, is becoming stronger because it's harmonized by the intellect. It's, it's not just a sentiment, but it's a well-reasoned feeling, and it starts to become a, a wise love. Hmm? It becomes wisdom, yeah, rather than just uh, um, uh, knowledge. Hmm? Um, so uh, uh, this is also, you, you want to be attentive in your practice, right? So attentive to the chanting, and it's a little bit of a boxing match with, with, match with the mind, uh, as he said. So one of the ways that will help us to become attentive to the chanting is to bathe our intellect, for example, as Krishna recommends in the Bhagavad Gita or other similar texts, hmm? or the discussions of them. Like, I've got thousands of lectures like this one that you can you know, download o- online or listen to them, and you can do them while you're driving or cooking or whatever, and it, and it will fortify your buddhi. Hmm? And that will, that will enable you to better practice, have less reasons for distraction, you make it difficult, more difficult not to practice because the talks are compelling and they say there's the reason you should practice, there's the reason you should. And so um, that's very, um, very, very, very useful. And, you know, we have a thing of offenses to the, to the, to the name. If you study those, you see, if I understood the philosophy, I, I wouldn't commit any of those offenses. Like you understand the philosophy, so you understand the difference between chanting the name of Krishna and the name of Durga or something like that. So you don't make that. Mistake, right? Why? Because you know the philosophy hmm? on that level. So it's called sambandagyan, knowledge about the nature of bhakti, basically you want to say. Hmm? That in and of itself fosters that the actions that we call bhakti. So if I have a conceptual orientation towards something, it will foster a certain type of action. So all this philosophy and discussions are meant to foster a, well, to, to provide us with a conceptual orientation and framework to life hmm, that will foster the action of bhakti. Hmm? So if you want to pay attention, for example, to the chanting, then you might, start by paying, you might start by paying attention to what the chanting is, how it's explained, what is the philosophy that underlies it, and, and, and so on and so forth. Acquaintance with that in itself amounts to some measure of paying attention to what you're doing and arguably will foster a, a, a greater um, ability to concentrate on the sound when you chant and, and so forth. This should be your entertainment, this, uh, uh, this kind of thing. You know, these kind of discussions, these, this, this should be your vacation, this type of thing. So all of this... Um, is for, like I say, uh, in one sense, fortifying the booty, providing us with a sangskar for our chitta, for bhakti, a tendency for bhakti. Hmm? You do this, and then and, and you, you develop a tendency for it. What, you know, what is that? You know, whatever you practice, you, you become something like that. Uh, habits formed in youth are... 
whatever, difficult to change or something. That's what so I'm saying like that. So, yeah, that is. So that I don't mean an attentively second nature, but it's but it's natural for you. To, you want to, so you want to be in situations that you will have the opportunity to develop bhakti sanskar. That's the basis of our whole identification, our, our whole relationship with Krishna, bhakti sanskar. It's not our material sanskar that makes us feel like, I'm like this, therefore I think I'd like to be a gopi, or I'd like to be Krishna's mother, because I love motherhood. You know, that's, you know, okay, but in next life you might like fatherhood, or you might not like to get you know, married. Or it, it, That's all a swabhav, you know, that's part of I'm an American, or I'm an Indian. That's not going to determine your relationship with Krishna. That's going to be determined by bhakti sanskar over lifetimes. Hmm? It's touch with sadhus who have a certain kind of bhakti. It'll, it'll come to you. Hmm? And you'll find yourself naturally attracted to certain leelas in due course. Hmm? Um, and then within that broader category, then you, you can form your own identity out of bhava, of course. Um, but it's a particular general kind of bhava. In our sampradaya, the two principal bhavas are this gopi bhava and of, of romantic love in, this, in the service of Radha and, uh, and, and Krishna, and then the, 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 the friendly love, which is also in the service of Radha and Krishna, but also Krishna and Ram, Balaram, and so forth. So these are the two main influences we find in the sampradaya. Um, so these will naturally come in, in the devotees in due course. And, um, and that's what we call bhakti sanskar, hmm? on a higher level. On a lower level, it's just a tendency to... We, if we meet people, we find that they've been just kind of hanging out in life until they contact bhakti, and all of a sudden it turns them on. It makes sense. And, and then they hit the ground running, and, uh, and, um, and they, they take it up very, very naturally and so forth. We see from previous life. Some people are just kind of getting it this life. And uh, so we want to expose ourselves to the Susada Sangha where we get Bhakti Sangskar hmm? and we want to follow. We want to hear the talks and after the talks we want to talk about the talks. Hmm? That's useful. He said this, she said that, and that was interesting. Did you get that? And, but, you know, if our Sangskar is not strong enough, we after the talks we talk about other things that are Less important. I mean, gradually you'll have to go to that because you have your life and so forth. But, but, but overall, that's what this is about. So, this is the way, in a sense, some kind of immersion practice is highly recommended. That's why we have Krishna Janmashtami. Really, every day is worth celebrating on the spiritual path. But we single out certain days and make a big festival out of it and so forth. And people go, wow, that was great, and, and so forth. And eventually you see how to turn every day in, into that. I mean, we were with Prabhupada once in Los Angeles, and we had this festival in the park. And um, after the festival, one of the devotees, uh, Sanyasi, turned to Prabhupada and said, Prabhupada, today was just, that was just wonderful, that festival. And Prabhupada said, every day is a festival. <laughs> so these days are meant to show us what... And we will immerse ourselves in sadhu song. And so we, 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 that the lesson is, well, why don't I do that more often? <laughs> kind, of, kind of a thing. You kind of, you know, get, get it after a while. Um, um, and in this way, the, the booty is fortified. Hmm? And the, the, the heart, the faith becomes 
uh, harmonized with, with intellect, so it doesn't, it's no longer weak. It's komal. In the beginning, it's komal. It's tender, so it's tender. And, 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 it, 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 and, and faith is what animates us. So if you, if you have faith in something, then you can do it. If you don't have faith, then how you do it? Hmm? Uh, so suspicion causes some suspension, uh, and faith is the animating force in life. Krishna says in Gita, a person is their faith. Hmm? They're, they're ma- that that's what, what animates them. Hmm? Um, so we want us to take that faith from being weak, which, which enables our practice to be unsteady, Hmm? and make it strong. You keep listening like this, and, and you become cornered. And you, and you think, God, I, I like, can't get away from this. It's like, you know, I, I should be practicing. I, I, I shouldn't be doing that. That's not in my interest. And it's not a question of almost, this is bad, this is good. You think about it for yourself. Is it good for you? It's not like good or bad. I'm a bad person. I'm a good person. You think, is it good for my practice? This is bad for my practice. If it's bad for my practice, why am I shooting myself in the foot? Do I want to walk this path? Yes. Then why are you shooting yourself in the foot? You tell me. Hmm? So, you, you know, I mean, it's like that. We're just trying, just trying to ask people to make sense to themselves. You know, just be sensible. Do you want to walk this path? Well, yes, I want to walk this path. Then why are you shooting yourself in the foot? Good question, Swami. Um, yeah, so I leave it with you, you know, to answer that. The answer is, there's no good reason. It's bad reasoning. I'm deviating from being even reasonable. And do I want to be unreasonable? Do I don't want to appear like an unreasonable person who you know, says one thing and does something else? No. So do I want to be a hypocrite? No. You know, so, so there's a stage, of course, where our practice is uh, unsteady, anishtabhajan. So it's up and down. And the reason is because the faith is tender. Hmm? And the booty is not well fortified, and so forth. And so, when you get good association, it becomes strong. Without that, it becomes comes weak. And uh, but there's the the, the real um, essential point here is that somehow, or the, some extent, you have to be connected with the real live current of bhakti. Hmm? That some sadhu of real spiritual consequence. Uh, cares about you, hmm? and it, it, so that's kind of like a life, a lifeline, so to speak. And um, gradually, he's like you're out to sea, and he's gradually pulling that line in. And you want to drink some more salt water? Okay, <laughs> Go ahead, have a drink. How, how do you like that? Want to come a little closer? You know, so, something like that. And he, he, he or she, you know, reels us in. That's what's important. That's like you know our anchor, if you will, or our our life raft, so to speak. Hmm? Otherwise, we're we're very much uh, adrift. And in connection with such a person, then this faith, the idea is, faith is a very tangible thing. Hmm? It's not this intangible. Like I said, reason really is beautiful when it becomes an assistant to faith. This is how we're talking about using reasoning. We're not saying reasoning should be thrown out. Theology really is a reasoning about the phenomenon of faith, which is, from our perspective, from the Gita's perspective, the kind of faith we're talking about is, is, is divine intervention into your life. Hmm? Like, um, it's like the people who see... I've given an example before. 
see the UFOs. You know, you go out on the porch and a spacecraft just left it landed in my backyard. And what do I do? So I run in to tell everybody, and everybody goes, uh, you know, okay. We go out there and take a look, and there's no, there's no, there's no aliens there. Um, you know, maybe you should take some rest and something like that. You know. But then you saw it, you know, and you can't convince anybody, but you know you saw it, and so you, so then you, you find out that other people that say they saw it, you know, somewhere else, and nobody else agreed with them either. So then you join with those people, hmm? right? You form a UFO club and you talk about your experiences and and uh, and and so forth, and you you try to figure out what it was, what's it about. This way, <laughs> so we're like that, you know. You, you live in a family community of people, and Krishna consciousness, Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Somebody came through and gave a talk, and your friend came to the talk too, and said that was okay. And you, we go, oh, God, that was great. I think we, that was really, you know, well, yeah, it was all right. And then you want to go to another one. He doesn't want to go to the next one, hmm? and suddenly, like, you got to find new friends, something like that. It's like who, who, who you who have, are like-minded, hmm? Right, so that's how it works. Then you find friends who are like-minded, who are also devotees, and then in the context of that, someone stands out who can, who, who really can address your your faith and uh, and and your your doubts. Like I say, come before the guru and doubt. That's what you should do. Come and doubt. Sit and doubt, hmm? and voice the doubts that they may be retired. Hmm? And then you're then you're you know then you have no excuses. Something like, and still he excuses you. Yeah, you're unreasonable. That'll, in time, then hopefully that'll change. Um, you'll learn for yourself that it's you know it's it's not good to shoot yourself in the foot and you know and, and try to walk down the path. <laughs> Something like that. So he's just trying to help you know, or she's just trying to help you make uh, have some common sense, a strong common sense, and and do what is in your own interest. Uh, a helper like this. Uh, insignificant from his or her own perspective, but big in our lives. Hmm? Um, so, so we have this yes, divine intervention, a divine faith. We, ha- we have this insight. It makes sense to us. Why does it make sense to us? It doesn't make sense to some other people. Well, maybe they haven't heard a good explanation. Maybe we can't explain it as well as someone explained it to us. And maybe that. But still, maybe even even then, having that same explanation, they, they don't take it. Well, there's reasons for this. Our participation in this is not entirely rational. It's not based alone on reasoning. It's based on bhakti sangskar. So in previous lives, in this life, we get some sangskar for bhakti without knowing it. Hmm? What that has an effect that, that predisposes our psychology to the reasoning of the school of bhakti. Hmm? Which is a way of talking about something that transcends language, but it but it resonates with us because now we've been slightly predisposed towards it without even knowing it. See how aggressive Krishna is. Hmm? Like the name of Krishna has power. Hmm? You hear it and you don't know what it is, but still you hear it, and, and it accumulates over lifetimes, and it, then it suddenly it starts to be meaningful to you in a way that it's not to somebody else. And uh, the philosophy about it all like makes sense to you. Yeah, I like that. You think these are all the answers to life, and then somebody else goes, "Well, I don't like those answers. They're not good for me." And, and you think, "Well, I've got them. They're, it's just like clear. This is, you know, 
There's, uh, but there's holes in every philosophy, of course, and even now are there holes in it. In a, in a, not too many, but, but, but that is, that, that's part of our philosophy, that you cannot fully articulate in language and put into thought that which transcends thought and language. Hmm? But enough to compel us to engage in a transrational exercise, like the chanting, for example, that will enable us to experience something that intellect and mind can only at best reason as to the value of and help us to go in the direction of. Hmm? So that's to get the mind to be your friend, right? It could be your enemy as well, as the Gita says. Mind is a friend and the enemy as well. So if you train it properly by this fortifying the buddhi, then in time, you get bhakti samskar in the chitta. Hmm? And this bhakti samskar starts to foster feelings for bhakti, emotions for bhakti. Even that, and, then, and ultimately, uh, bhakti herself fully, bhakti proper manifests and takes over the mind. Hmm? What is that verse? Ruchibis. Ruchibis chitta Bhava Uchite Sudasatma Visheshatma Prema Suryamsu Samyabhak Ruchibis Chid Masrina Anyway, Ruchibis, this is the Ruchibis Chid Masrina. The mind becomes, the mental system is taken over by Bhava. Bhakti has different aspects. It's active and it's emotive. And in the, the emotive side, bhava also has actions that arise out of it. But there are actions that we can engage in without the emotive side proper having manifest, the ecstasy, like chanting. You can chant because you've heard about it, it makes sense, and, you, and it feels good, but you don't really have bhava. Now I heard they have this thing called Bhakti Fest and they have these t-shirts. What do they say? Feel the bhav. Something. Be in the bhav. Feel the bhav and so forth. Well, you know, that's... Uh, you can say, you know, feel the ecstasy. But are you... Ecstasy means... I think it literally means in English beyond the... Uh, ex... Stasi. Beyond the senses. Hmm? Beyond the senses. So are you really going beyond the senses? It means beyond the mind, hmm? the, the material mind. Hmm? And touching the self, which is a unit of ananda. Hmm? What to speak of? That's sukhana, swasukhana, swasukhana. Swasukha, the joy of the self, the ananda of the self. What to speak of bhakti ananda? That's, a, that's another thing. I mean, so these the terms shouldn't be taken cheaply, be in the bhav, that would be a good idea, but it's not, that's not so, that's not just, hey, you know, kind of a development on hippiedom or something like that. I don't want to get a little bit, a little bit of philosophy and, uh, and, and a little chanting, and then, you know, you hear you get to be, you know, kind of the rock star that you always wanted to be, and <laughs> leading the... Leading the kirtans, you know, become a kirtaneer. Couldn't really make it in the musical world, but 
the kirtan scene, you know, you can have your album and, uh, and so forth. And uh, <laughs> so, so uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and usually at the Bhakti Fest, no philosophy, we're just going to chant, you know. So, okay, well, philosophy is good. Without any sambandagyan, without this fortifying the buddhi, then do we really know what we're doing, what the implications of it is, and and um, and how you will actually be in the bhava will require that you have to forego certain things that are not that are ecstatic that do constitute like shooting yourself in the foot and so forth and and so on. So um, so bhava, this is bhakti proper. We have bhakti sadhana. Sadhana bhakti is kind of like imitation of a good thing. It's a good thing. So you come in touch with somebody who has real feeling and ecstasy. So you get inspired, and they do these things, and they talk about them. And they like them, they recommend them, so I'll do them too. I'll chant, I'll maybe even dance. It feels good. You know, on some level it feels good. Hey, getting around and you know, and it's a group of <laughs> it's a group of people. We're doing something spiritual, I give my heart and so on and so forth. I get good feelings from it, but that's not what we mean by bhava. Bhava means like a kind of um, noetic noetic bliss. A bliss in which there's knowing. Hmm? One knowing, I knowing, and it, it comes first in the beginning. I know that material life is 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 its ending, and then we cry, it's over, it's ending, the whole struggle, it's ending, and I, and I, I feel myself coming out from that. It's it's actually unraveling, and this is like just a beginning idea. Experience, hmm? and sometimes the boys will get a, a glimpse of that also in, in sadhana. That's what keeps them going, so to speak. They might by transfer, you know, by abhas, by association with others that who have, they get some semblance. They think, "Wow, that was." A, they get some bliss. They feel that's different than anything I've ever felt before. Hmm? Different. It's 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 a kind of like waves of. Of, of of joy that uh, that bring you know tears to the eyes and and, and it's, as I say it, it it's accompanied by a kind of knowing like ah this is what they're talking about I'm experiencing it. and you know it you don't just sometimes like there was a story famous story of one of Prabhupada's disciples very early in the 60s said that Prabhupada every time I chant I get surrounded by blue light and Prabhupada said keep chanting it'll go away. <laughs> so there's that side where we're imagining that something's happening and this is what it is that's why it's good as I said to know this know, know this text then you know well that's not what we're looking for here that's some, that's my, the mind's imagination and so forth carrying away and me away and, 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 and so on so so uh, from but from sadhana bhakti and good association bhakti and practice we come to bhava Bhakti and bhava, bhakti and ecstasy. That means you've you've arrived. Then an ecstasy is cultivated into into prema. The bhava is is a ray of prema. It comes and takes over the mind. It causes devotees to speak in certain ways, to act in certain ways. And and ruchi vis chitta This is bhava. The mind becomes uh, melted. And Baba's riding on the mind, so it's it's no longer uh, acting materially. Daivim prakriti mahatmas. 
moving under a different energy and so forth. So this is uh, something about how to, what is mind and how to deal with it. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. So probably just say we've got 60 books and so forth and they're supposed to be, you know, not just to be sold to other people. <laughs> supposed to be read and relished and... Uh, we heard here, Sukadev was said about Parikshit Marsh's question. He said, "Wow, this, like you're, you reached a point where you find this really interesting, new and new, newer and newer at every moment. You can hearing the story again again. You want to hear more about it, more. This is this is. He's very encouraged. Wow, he, he's getting a liking for this, a taste for this. This is. There's a stage in our sadhana, in bhakti and practice, where our our practice becomes is unsteady, then it becomes steady." And that steady practice is very much um, involves the, that the intellect be fully engaged. We can engage our bodies, but our intellect, according to the measure that we have, has to be engaged. said, Constantly hearing the Bhagavad, the Gita, and these things, this will, as I said, fortify the intelligence, that will fortify your practice, so it becomes steady. Then from steady practice... Over a long period of time, then taste for it starts to come. A taste for it comes. In the stage of nishta, steadiness in practice, one doesn't do things that doesn't. One doesn't shoot oneself in the foot. Thoughts may come, but they're not entertained. They're they're allowed to just keep pass on through. And he's he's his his or her practice is directed by spiritual intelligence. Hmm? And so, despite the mind. It's proposals and so that they arise. The practice is such that they don't have the chance to fructify, hmm? and then suddenly he comes out on the other side, and he, he and he and he and he, he doesn't even have a taste for those things. Hmm? In Ruchi, there may be some lingering taste if they were given the opportunity to be entertained, hmm? but they're not given the opportunity to be entertained, and then in due course of time. Because they're ignored, they go away. <laughs> if you ignore somebody long enough, they'll stop talking. You know? So they, they go away. Hmm? And then a taste for bhakti. Hmm? This is what I said before, where the, f- the medicine of bhakti becomes like food. Hmm? That's very nice. Hmm? Then one just wants to sit down and chant and, and, um, and so forth. There's no question of getting absorbed. It's, it's, it's very immediately absorbed, and so forth. So this kind of liking is this an advanced stage of, of bhakti and practice. And at that time, more internal practices can also be incorporated of meditation and so forth, and developing uh, the budding uh, relationship with, with, with Bhagavan. Then it, from there it goes into a stage called asakti, which is one becomes attached to the object of one's love, Krishna, in a particular form, like Krishna standing next to Radha, this Krishna, and from there, one enters into bhava, graduates from bhakti sadhana, enters into bhava bhakti. Cult, there's a cultivation of the bhava that turns turns into into prema and and perfection. These are the stages. So we want to get like you know, if you take it like a mountain, and then the valley of spiritual existence and lila on the other side. We're over here. Valleys over here, and there's a mountain in between. So there's stages in the practice that are going uphill, and whoops, that rock is falling. <laughs> and you got a rope. That's what I said. You need a rope, you know, to climb the mountain. You got to be 
tied on, so to speak, anchored, you know, to the, to the other side. You got a rope extending from the valley, you know, all the way over the top. Hang on there. And, and, uh, and, and you know, and so in using, you know, playing the analogy out also, the rock, rock falls from under your foot and you go, oh, and then, but he goes, oh, the rope's there. Oh, you know, he'll be caught. So the guru's not too worried about it, you know. That's a given. Some rocks will fall from under your feet, you know, but uh, keep, keep going, you know. Then you get to the top, so to speak, that's like Nishta, like, wow, and you can kind of like see, well, you can, at least you can see, it's all downhill from here. Right? <laughs> and as you start to go down the hill, Ruchi, then you can, you start, you start to see, you can see the valley. So there's like, you know, now you're going just, you're, you're, you're not watching your feet anymore. Your eyes are just on the goal and you're walking, not watching where you're going, so to speak, uh, you know, from step to step. That just goes naturally. Hmm? Then you enter into the valley of love of God and do, of course, something like that. So, so we've got to get beyond the climbing stage, something grad- gradually. There's some learning curve is there, but again, the, the, the whole what was most useful for us in that stage is what got us involved in the first place, the sadhusanga, good, good, good company. Yeah. That's really most helpful. We'll get more from that, a few days of that, than a whole year of, of our practice, possibly. Because yeah. our ability to practice is, is, is limited. What else? Yes? Mm-hmm. Um, if love of God is our ultimate goal in this life, yet there are material goals along the way that maybe society sets up to meet, for us to meet, such as going to college for degrees or this and that. But our practice isn't so steady. So if you come to a point where you're thinking, should I go to school and get this degree, but knowing going to school for two or four years my sudden is going to go down and I'm not going to have the association and you're weighing against your spiritual life how far do we go for our spiritual life? How much do we give up in terms of material life? How drastic should we be? Uh, not too drastic. I, I, I don't see why you couldn't be a devotee in practice and still get an education and have work and so on and so forth. Of course, the Western society here is not conducive to that, like a society in India hundreds of years ago. And to be a devotee was a, you know, uh, something that was normal, and, uh, and you could be a Vaishnava or a Shaivite or whatever and uh, show up with your tea lock at work, you know, and, and it's not an issue. So there's a little bit of, like, Clark Kent and Superman kind of, you know, going on here. You've got to change out, outfits. Uh, but, um, but, but, um, I don't think that uh, it has to be such a, such a contradiction. What you're basically talking about, though, is, is an extended idea of what we call Vyuta Vikalpa, which is this, this mind's going, should I go to school or should I just join the ashram? Should I get married and have a family or maybe I'll just join the ashram? Hmm? You know, this mental energy is going back and forth, back and forth, back. It's called Yudha Vikalpa, indecision. Hmm? It's actually kind of an anartha, psychological condition that uh, on one extent or another we're, 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 we, you'll, you'll deal with. 
Um, and the idea is to settle that issue and, and, and the teaching is that one or the other is not necessarily required. Hmm? And if you're thinking about it too much, you should probably, you know, if you think, I should join the ashram, maybe I shouldn't join the ashram. Yeah. If, if you want to live in the ashram, you know, it should be pretty much, I want to live in the ashram. You know? So like, um, we, don't, we don't like, in a sense, I ask people, so, you know, you, they, they're interested in getting involved and say, is your interest from a monastic perspective or other, you know, otherwise? And if they say otherwise, I just say, okay, well, we'll just go with that then, you know. If they say, well, I've thought about monasticism, I say, well, then maybe, you know, you know check it out, you know, you, you try it and so forth. But, um, but it, it's a little bit, you know, someone has to be a little bit self-motivated for that and think, yeah, I, I like that idea and... Uh, if we, we just try to convince them something, you know, no, oh, you know, if you go to school, you'll miss out for so many years. Eh. People have their certain psychologies and propensities and so on, so it's better to work with them. And there's no reason that we can't work with them, those propensities, and, pro- and progress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear the teaching and they sound like, I should just, you know, give up everything right now. That's their teaching. And then you get this, this neuroticism of, well, but, you know, uh, and you're in this indecision is is really dominating your whole mental system and you don't do either one of them hmm? and so it's a lot of waste of you know your your, your mental energy hmm? so that the basic and the basic decision in this view to be called is should I join an ashram and give up everything or should I be in the world and practice from that perspective and there's many nuances of that should I go to school or you know or an education or forego education because that'll be so many years just getting an education and I could be spending more time chanting instead of studying. I could be studying the Bhagavatam instead of studying physics and, and so on and so forth. So it's another kind of version of it and so on. I, and I think, uh, well, you know, to be short, most people don't, you know, live in a monastery. You know, the vast majority of them. So you have a pretty, fairly strong, you know, interest in that idea or, or some prospect of it, um, let's say, you know, you feel comfortable and without being in a relationship. If you don't feel, you feel like, I really like to be in a relationship, then you really need to get a job, and it's probably a good idea to get an education, too. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason that you can't do that and, and still uh, progress in bhakti. In fact, if you don't do that, because your tendency towards that is so strong, artificially trying to renounce that and do bhakti won't enable you to concentrate on the bhakti either. So you say, my choices are like, but you don't really have those choices. If you choose, I'm not going to go to school because somebody said, school is maya. Don't go there. You should only study the Bhagavatam. All knowledge is there. Yeah, okay. Then, but then you can't do that because you, 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 your, your propensity, your tendency is so strong in the other direction that the, you really don't have the choice. So we just have to really analyze someone's psychology a little bit and then say, you know, and it's with good help, say, you should go to school and you should get married and have a job and I love you. And you practice like this. Chant this many rounds, come to these festivals, donate something from your worldly income to help the mission regularly um, and, and, and so forth. And uh, have children or whatever it is you're going to do and, and we can... We can harmonize all this, and you can have a nice 
spiritual life um, as well. Because, because if we were to take you and plop you into the ashram, and there'd be all kind of issues that came up, and it would be like, mm, this person doesn't belong here. Uh, <laughs> it's disturbing the atmosphere, and they themselves are not, you know, taking advantage of it, and so forth. And so we have the best place to be. Hmm, is not in the ashram or out of the ashram. It's where you're best psychologically uh, suited to take advantage of whatever practices you can take advantage of, whatever extent you can take advantage of bhakti. You, you personally, for example, have, have, have come far enough to be able to be an initiated devotee, and, 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 and so you come a long way, so you've got so much going for you. You're born in a devotee's family, and I know your mother, and and so forth for many years. So, um, uh, but you know, you should be married, and and then you know, you're going to have to have some livelihood. So, you should, if you get an education, you can work less and make more and have more time for bhakti. And so, you don't want to, you want to have a long range kind of a plan. Hmm? It's a long haul, so you go for the long haul. And then, in the context of that, it's not an either or, one or the other. The, you know, but sometimes it's it's kind of we kind of translate it like it's one or the other. No, there are many great householder devotees of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and so forth. And what is the problem? I mean, uh, whatever you do, you're only going to work a certain number of hours and be active, and you're going to have a certain amount of time off, hmm? and you're going to have a certain amount of hours to sleep uh, that you, that it works for you, and so so you you know you. You figure them out, and you you make your priorities. I mean, you, you could go to school, you could get a job. It doesn't mean you have to sit around all evening and watch TV. You could be, you know, having an art deacon in your ha- house, or going to a nearby temple for your entertainment in the evening, or or reading, studying, chanting, having friends over for chanting or something, or in the morning. Hmm? Um, you know, it's just a question of scheduling your your time. Really, there's time for everybody. There's time for the practices. Make a priority and schedule time for that and, you know, write it down. This is the time for chanting. And then you start to orient your life around that practice, even though there are other activities that are, that are vital to your life, materially speaking. And they're vital to your practice also, because without doing them, you won't feel whole enough to practice. Because you might feel, I don't feel whole, now I've got a partner, but I want a child, you know. And I just always wanted to, you know, so you know, <laughs> I got to have it. So without that, you just think, I wish I, you know, then your mind is distracted. So you have that. That's not necessarily, you know, a problem. But then, you know, you, again, you have to be the kind of rule the roost, so to speak. It's your life. Hmm? It's your house. And we do this this time. If the kids don't want to do it at a certain point, well, they have their own life. And they can go and do it. But this is how we do it in our house. Hmm? And I ch- and I tell my partner I chant at this time. I would recommend you do so. Other if you don't want to, at least you support me. And the door's closed at this time. I chant at this time. You know. So there's uh, there's no reason why it has to be either, either or. And um, so whatever extent you can take advantage of the practice, and there should be some basic level that you agree with with your mentor and so forth, and you stick with that. And and um, and then get the basic material ingredients in place that you need in your life to feel whole and from there then give your all your energy to practice. Hmm? Does that make sense? So you don't have to think about it anymore. 
What will you be when you grow up? <laughs> You're already grown up. <laughs> You're a devotee. But then there are devotees who are doctors and lawyers and massage therapists and uh, yoga teachers and salesmen. And Bhakti Vinod was a magistrate, actually, a judge. Yeah. So, what else? Yes. Um, in your monasteries, you have a standard of we like a time the morning and philosophy in the evening. Um, is it are, are more receptive to philosophy in the evening, or like, what's the idea? No. Um, me personally, or people in general, are you asking? I don't know. Like, why is that standard? Why do I have the Lila Kata in the morning and the questions in the evening? It could be the other way around. Hmm. Would you prefer it the other way around? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, uh, it's a, it says in the monastic schedule up on, the, on the website. It says, do you want to like a time in the morning? Oh, really? I didn't know that. Do you have a mission? I pretend not to be because, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Lila, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, it's not. Uh, I don't know who put that there. <laughs> Sometimes we do philosophy morning and evening, or Lila Kata morning and evening. But Lila Kata is full of philosophy, too. So we'll continue with that. In the morning tomorrow is the Janmastami, right? So it's a long, long day. You're up till midnight and then break fast at midnight, and there'll be. Uh, class in the morning at 9.30, there'll be initiation, some of the devotees will be initiated, there'll be a Agnihotra, a fire sacrifice, and um, and then the Maharaj will speak with, in the afternoon as well, and then and then there'll be Arctic in the evening, there'll be an I'll speak again, and then there'll be the sacred bathing of the deity, and Kirtan, and midnight Arctic, and Prashadam, and clean up <laughs> and take rest and so forth. So it's a big day. Probably we'll have some more visitors for that as the evening comes on and so forth. So until then. See Janmashtami Hotsava Ki Jai. Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai. Gaur Premanandi. Jai.